Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Why don't you grab a Bible uh, and raise your hand if you need one, and let's meet one another in Acts 17, verse 10. Acts 17, verse 10. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Uh, Before we uh, jump back into Acts, I want to just share with you a little bit about something that took place in the past couple of days in our broader church family. Um, Chad Watson isn't here this morning because uh, one of his dear friends who is a a fellow pastor, fellow elder of another local church that gathers, uh, congregations gather in Michigan City and Laporte and also in Chicago, uh, was in a fatal car accident just two or three days ago. And uh, this is uh, a man who actually Chad shared with me on the phone yesterday. Who Chad said, there's a couple of times that I wanted to give up uh, the ministry or I wanted to walk away. And one of those times, uh, Kevin Galloway stood in the gap and encouraged me to stick with it, to remain faithful, to not grow weary in doing good. And uh, so it was uh, a, a no-brainer decision for us as an elder team when they asked Chad in the last minute to come and minister to their church family there in Laporte and in uh, Michigan City today. Um, but we do grieve with them. We grieve and just would ask your prayers for Chad as right now he's before a lot of people who he doesn't know personally. He knew Kevin, loved Kevin, Kevin loved him. Um, but this is a 50-year-old man, two children and a wife, and uh, the immensity of loss is difficult to summarize. Um, and it's, I think, one of the most natural things is to think, what would it be like if that was us? Uh, if that was us, and yet at the same time, it is us. Those are our brothers and sisters. That was our brother. And um, the, <clears throat> the difficulty of that kind of loss, that kind of pain, is it's a lot safer to keep it at a distance and to just go, oh, we didn't really know them. We do know them. That's our brother. Those are our brothers and sisters. That's our family. This is what This is what it means to be adopted into the family of God is that we shoulder the celebration and sorrow of people we will not meet until eternity. We perhaps will never meet until we have met Jesus and are face to face with them uh, in the age to come. And so we lament and we grieve today. And this doesn't mess up our gathering. This is what we're always doing as the people of God. When we come together, we're always lamenting. We're always sorrowful and we're always celebrating. We never get to choose when we walk through those doors. Today I'm going to be happy and just celebrate. Today I'm sad. No, when we look at the world and don't see that the name of Jesus is lifted high and that sin persists in so many places in our city, we lament. We're sorrowful. And yet we're hopeful. We're hopeful that the Lord Jesus will be faithful to his word, that he's gracious and kind. And so to help us understand that, I just want to read before I pray for uh, Christ Church there in Laporte and also in Michigan City, where Chad uh, will be today, or is already today. Uh, Read these words. Uh, Coincidentally, or I should say providentially, because I'll give God the credit, not some mysterious phenomenon, Uh, but providentially, as we go through Acts, we know that we have just been through the portion where Paul and his team have visited Thessalonica, and he wrote two letters back to Thessalonica, and one of the things that he wanted to instruct the church in Thessalonica is about how to grieve with hope. And here's what he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. But since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, 
through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is not a nice verse to paste on sorrow. This is our real hope that Jesus has conquered death. And so today, as our brothers and sisters in those different parts of this area, of this region are grieving, we grieve with them, and yet we pray that God's great hope would be present with them in leaps and bounds and ever-increasing abundance. So let's pray that uh, together before we enter or come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do grieve and we, we just say, how long, Lord Jesus? How long must we endure tragedy, sorrow, suffering, untimely death like this? I must admit it causes fear in me that in just a brief moment life can be stolen away. What seems completely accidental and something like a car crash. Father, we, we lament and it's one of these moments where we don't feel like we have the right words. And so we thank you when our words fall short that your spirit intercedes for us and communicates in a way to you, our heavenly Father, in a way we couldn't possibly And so in this, Father, help us to trust, help us to have peace. And Father, we just cry out for Kevin's wife and for his children who are in the midst of utter sorrow and loss and I'm sure shock. And I pray that as they gather with their church family who loved their pastor, their husband, dad so well, I pray, Father, that it would be an immense encouragement to them in the midst of their sorrow. That would you be a very present help in a time of severe trouble. I pray for that church, those brothers and sisters, with the words not only uh, here in 1 Thessalonians, but throughout the Scriptures, would they encourage them, would they bolster their faith, not so that they wouldn't mourn, but so that they would mourn unlike the world, with great hope that resurrection is real, that Jesus is alive, and that therefore there is a promised hope that is solidified in Jesus. We do pray for uh, one of the elders of our church, for our brother Chad. Would you equip him with all that he needs to be present with these, our brothers and sisters? Would you give him everything that he needs to love well? And give us a bigger vision for what it means to be the church, not at a competitive sense of whether it's Christ church or church in the square, but what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So give us that vision, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Encourage you to continue to pray For them, they do have a congregation in Chicago, which we're going to do our best to find more tangible ways to love them, to befriend them, to care for them in the midst of uh, their great loss. We'll keep you posted on that and pray for Chad today as he ministers to that dear church. Um, It seems perhaps a little bit funny, but I actually think quite timely that we're going to take a lot of time and consider God's Word this morning not just in God's Word, but about God's Word holistically in the face of such tragedy, but I do believe it's actually incredibly helpful. See, we tend to believe life is on a trajectory. One of those most uh, popular trajectories, if you will, is that things are getting better or they're getting worse, right? You've met a person who believes that every single day they wake up and things are not as good as they were yesterday, or perhaps it's you, um, that we have a deeply held belief Also, similar to the world getting worse or getting better, that the world is either getting more religious or more irreligious. And many statisticians and many people have done reporting on this, but many presume that particularly in progressive Western large cities like Chicago, we assume that everything is getting increasingly secular. In other words, we assume 
that because science and rationality are all expanding their uh, way into common sense, not just a particular niche understanding, but into common sense, then we have less and less a need for God. Therefore, the less and less people will find an organized religion, the less and less people will find meeting in churches like Church in the Square. We believe the less and less people will actually come to faith in Jesus and consider themselves Christian, Christians. This presumption is really, I think, a modern retelling of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a story about a bunch of people getting together and believing that they could build a structure that would make it all the way up to God, in effect, unmaking his divinity. They wanted to make a name for themselves, the writer of Genesis tells us. Well, they were just as wrong then as we are now in our understanding, because God is not going anywhere. As Pastor Tim Keller explains in his book, Making Sense of God, sociologists Peter Berger and Grace Davey report that most sociologists of religion now agree that the secularization thesis that religion declines as society becomes more modern has been empirically shown to be false. However, what we do see is what we call inherited religion on the decline. Inherited religion on the decline. In other words, those faiths that are born are indistinguishable from our culture or our ethnic heritage. Modern people are walking away from those kinds of faith, but chosen religion with a story of contrition, investigation, conversion, and repentance, they, these are on the rise. Not only so, but in less modern non-Western countries and cultures, Things are growing at an astronomical rate. In East Asia, that's China, Korea, and Japan, 170 million Christians will worship Jesus today, up from 11 million just 50 years ago, from 11 million to 170 million in just 50 years. In Africa today, 600 million men and women will gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, which represents nearly 50% of the population. In 1910, only 9%, that's 12 million Africans, claimed the name of Jesus. In fact, today, more Anglicans and Episcopalian followers of Jesus will gather for worship in Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa than in Britain and in the United States combined. This means that more and more people from Addis Ababa to Tokyo to, to Chicago are seeing something true and real about faith. So why does ignorance persist? Why do we continue to believe? And why does it continue to feel? And in many respects, why do we continue to have evidence that we are more and more removed from God, particularly in a city like Chicago? We might say, and this is, this is the easy thing, it's because of the unbelievers. It's because of those other people who have not become followers of Jesus yet. It is their fault. It's because of the haters, Right? We just need to drop that kind of tired bit. It's not me, it's you, it's your problem. However, the remedy, I believe, is not about getting unbelievers to hear the truth and believe for the first time. It's not about bringing new people into the church to hear the gospel only. That's always the outflow or impact of something else. Seems to me it is much more about those who claim the name of Jesus, who believe in this truth, it's not about more people knowing the truth. It's about those who claim to know the truth to living as if they know the truth. 
It's about believing and obeying God's word. In fact, the real need is for you and I to no longer read the headlines of cultural propaganda and to start reading and examining the truth of God's word. Isn't it true that we often intake way more information produced by uninspired authors than we do by the inspired book of God? See, the world remains ignorant of Jesus, not because they haven't heard, but I think much more because we have not fully submitted to it. Yes, we are gathered. Yes, we identify as Christians, but we examined Jesus and trusted his lordship, and we must do this through obedience. That's what I believe is what's going on in Berea in Acts 17, verse 10 through 15. Hear these words. Acts 17, verse 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas Uh, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open up our eyes, open up our hearts that we might see and savor and enjoy the goodness of you, our God. I pray that you would help us to lay down defenses. I pray that you would help us to be ready and eager to confess sin, that we might draw near to you and intimacy, and in joy. Oh God, would you give us joy today? Joy that shows up as a result of truth. Joy that shows up as a result of hope, and peace, and contrition before a holy God. God, equip us, sharpen our minds, make our hearts soft to love you rightly, make our feet ready for action, that we might become brothers and sisters, a family that you're calling us to be pray, Father, that you would help us to live in obedience, that the world may know, that they may know you, that more and more when men and women would come to know and love and follow Jesus, we pray that for our neighborhoods, we pray that for our city, we pray that for our world. So help me, God, help me to be clear and responsible with your word and help these, my brothers and sisters and myself, to obey your word because none of us is over or next to your word. We all are under it. And so may we submit to the authority of your word today as we submit to you, our Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Long before millions could gather in the United States and in China and East Africa, the Apostle Paul was leading these missionary efforts throughout the known first century world in Asia Minor and into Greece. So it's amazing to sort of walk with him Uh, and journey along with him, if you will, through these stories, because now we are the beneficiaries of such original 
works. See, we couldn't gather in Addis Ababa or Tokyo or Chicago in the same way, perhaps, if, if Paul hadn't gone to Lystra and to Philippi and then on into Thessalonica. These are precursors, if you will, to what we now enjoy as God's people. Having preached the gospel to Jews and then Greeks, Luke is also sure to add women as the way in which that God's church is being built, even in the midst of such threatening opposition like the leading Jews in Thessalonica, who will persist, did you notice, all the way into Berea. And if you remember, he is going to Berea because he really needed to save his life. Jason, who is my hero, has nothing to do with his name. Just I feel like he's underappreciated in the scriptures. Only this one story. I mean, come on. Also mentioned in Romans 16. But I just really, not that I'm paying attention. <laughs> um, but Jason is the one who helped to safeguard Paul and his people as the gospel was being preached in Thessalonica. And if you remember, this is how it went down for them. Move your eyes back up to verse 5 in Acts 17. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So from here, the local believers protect these church planters or missionaries. It is Paul and Silas, and presumably Timothy is with them there, and they tell them to go to Berea immediately. And Jason willingly takes on such shame, such pain, such suffering, so that they can go free, so that they can make it to Berea and continue the work. Having been forced from Thessalonica, Paul and his team now head west and then south. Look now at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So Berea is about 50 miles from Thessalonica, about a three days a journey on foot. Uh, historic records tell us that Berea was popularly known as uh, off the beaten track, maybe where we get that kind of phrase, because it was figurative and it was literal. Because Berea, in order to get there, these missionary travelers needed to leave what was called the uh, Ignatia Way, or this highway that was uh, what they took, these missionaries, they took their entire time when they were on Macedonia. So here's where they get off the Ignatia Way, which would have taken them all the way to Rome. And when Paul writes in Romans 15 that he had tried to come to Rome many times, but was dissuaded or unable to do so, this may have been one of the times he was referring to, when he had to leave the highway, the main thoroughfare that would have taken him to Rome in order to protect and save his life and others with him. They go to Berea off the beaten track, away from the Ignatia Highway, and it prohibited them from going directly to Rome. Nevertheless, Berea was not a retreat center. Berea was not just a pause, a respite for them. No, it continued to be a place where God would advance the gospel and where persecution would continue to come to Paul and his team. Because Berea was off of that highway, but it, but it was also one of the most significant cities in that area because it was the capital of Macedonia from 167 B.C. to 148 B.C. 
So this was a significant location, and yet it was away from what now was the main thoroughfare. You can see why it would have been strategic for them to go there in terms of protection or of hiding. And so as was their custom, though, don't you love this? They're not just trying to hide. They go right to the synagogue and do what they do. They go and preach to the Jews. They go to the religious as soon as they get to town. However, like in Thessalonica, it will not only be Jews who hear the good news, but also Greeks and prominent women. But this is about where the similarities stop between Thessalonica and Berea. Luke makes it very clear. The Bereans are very different than the Thessalonicans. Look at verse 11. He pulls no punches. Now, these Jews, those Thessalonicans, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Snap. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Right out of the gates, Luke makes it very clear that this nobility, this kind of posture that they have was unlike the Thessalonians, right? And that word noble comes from the Greek word eugenis, and that word really means of noble birth originally. But it's interesting to see the change, um, the transformation of a word through its history. So it doesn't mean that these people are noble because by the first century, the quality of that word simply was a reflection or a characteristic of nobility. That means particularly that they were open-minded, they were generous, and they were tolerant. In other words, they were ready to listen to new ideas, unlike some people, like the Thessalonians. So this particular audience, uh, commentator uh, C.K. Barrett writes this, Luke means that the Berean Jews allowed no prejudice to prevent them from giving Paul a fair hearing. They were ready to listen. Let's be, let's be honest. It's not hard to be more receptive than to try and incarcerate and harm someone for preaching from the Bible. This is what the Thessalonians did. Nevertheless, Luke makes it clear they were ready to listen. Oh, may the same be said of us, church, that we're ready to listen. Their openness is described in two words that Luke gives us. See, unlike the Thessalonians, the Bereans, look at the first thing that he says, receive the word with all eagerness. They received the word. Perhaps most obviously, these Jews were receptive to the word unlike those who stirred up crowds and caused unrest. In particular, they were open to the claims about God's word. This should be uh, understood not simply as a new idea or a thought, because remember, these are Jews. These are people who knew the Hebrew scriptures. They understood the Hebrew scriptures. And so what they are receiving from Paul is the fulfillment of those scriptures in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. In other words, here's what your word, your scriptures have been anticipating, Jesus Christ. And unlike many, the Bereans were eager and open to hearing this news, this good news, where many would stay or would remain and desire to be ignorant of any fresh interpretation, of any fulfillment of this words. They were ready to be convinced that the long-awaited Messiah was here. Further revealing of their noble character, Luke uses this word of examine. They examined the scriptures daily. In other words, even though they were open, they weren't gullible. 
Even though they were open to new ideas, even though they were open to this interpretation and this understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures, anticipating the arrival of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, they weren't gullible. They investigated. They looked at the Word. They looked at what Paul said. They weighed it with what they understood from their own education, their own learning. They had curiosity and charity. It didn't lead them to stop thinking. You know, a criticism of many Christians is that we just leave our brains at the door and we're just looking for an emotional crutch when we come here. Don't do that. God gave you a brain and his word can withstand any intellectual jarring that you can bring to the table. And so that's what these Bereans do. They are open to a fresh interpretation and yet they will not be taken. The will will not be pulled over their eyes. And since, as we have learned from verse 2, Paul's proclamation was rooted in the scriptures. They go to the scriptures and examine and scrutinize everything that Paul said based on the word of God. And notice that little detail. They did it daily. Right? Isn't it true? Sometimes when we're faced with a difficult moral, ethical decision, or maybe even just tension in our group or our family, we look at like a verse or two and just go, I checked it out. It doesn't seem like God's word says that. They examine daily, is Paul's word legit? Because if his word's legit, we have some repenting, we have some confessing, we have some renewing of our minds to do. It seems that the Bereans have much more in common with our open and progressive and tolerant culture than we often give credit for. See, modern minds pride themselves in being gracious and curious and receptive to a worldview, including Jesus. However, their examination, many of our friends and neighbors, their examination doesn't go to the Word of God. It goes to personal inclination. To be sure, many have heard things, have heard friends, or have read a book, or read a passage here and there, but few have sufficiently and rightly scrutinized Jesus to the point of the Bereans. So instead of really seeing if Jesus, if what Jesus said was and is true, their openness leads to intellectual apathy. However, I'd be hard-pressed to ignore the embarrassing reality that perhaps many non-believers are not considering Jesus and his word more deeply because his own followers don't know his word. Perhaps nothing about the modern church causes our friends and neighbors to consider the word more than if the church would continue to lift high God's word in our lives, in the way that we speak, that it would be seasoned with the word of God. What I think Luke is espousing here, albeit subversively, because that's how a narrative works, is that the way to face the claims of Jesus is not by mounting up and fighting him, but rather by rationally, contemplatively consider and listen to what he has to say. Seeking the truth I believe, will always lead you to Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He can withstand that scrutiny. See, as the Bereans received and examined the word, the word of God brought much fruit. God's word never returns void, the scriptures teach us. God always accomplishes his will in the same way, through his word. So if we want to know his will, if we want to know what he's up to, we must know his word. Therefore, as the scriptures were examined, souls were transformed, regenerated from condemned to saved, lost to found, blindness to sight, deaf to hearing, bound to free, death to life. This is what always happens when God's word brings about God's will. 
In particular, two groups of people became followers of Jesus. There were Jews and Gentiles. And within those Gentiles, we see these high-standing women. So what Luke continues to communicate is it's not only a multi-ethnic transformative gospel, but it is also a gospel for every class and both genders. This is the kind of work that God's will and God's word does. It is indiscriminate. It is beautiful in its diverse application of the gospel power. This is what it means to be a family. You see, we might be led to believe, as many have surmised about the supposed decline of Christianity, is that Jesus is a crutch for the uneducated and the disenfranchised and the poor. And yes, he is the lifter of every head. But it is not just those who are disenfranchised and uneducated and poor. It is all, even those in high standing, who cannot over-scrutinize Jesus and his word without realizing, without at one point or another, bowing the knee and realizing the veracity and truth of who God is. This is why the gospel is growing everywhere. This is why the gospel is growing in different parts of the world, in different places, and through different people groups, through different stratas. This is why we will continue to see the gospel prevail, because it's not about who you have made yourself or what a system has made you. It's about who God has made you to be. See, the scriptures can and should be examined. And I want to take just a couple of minutes to help us understand what these scriptures actually are how they're put together, and why that matters. See, for many of us, perhaps we regularly do not go to the Scriptures because of what we don't understand about it. And so I want to help break it down in a couple of different ways about what the Scriptures actually are, what, what this Bible that some of you brought in carrying, some of you have an app on your phone, some of you raised your hand and had one delivered to you right to your seat. So what are these Scriptures? Well, we've got two Testaments. Let's break it down as much as we possibly can. The Old Testament has 49 different books, and the New has 27, making 66 books, all inspired by God, though about 40 different human authors took pen to paper. The scriptures are not organized chronologically, but topically. The Old Testament was written between 1446 and 400 BC, and moves from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scriptures, to history, to wisdom, to the major prophets, and finally to the minor prophets. And then the New Testament, written between AD 45 and AD 95, starts with the gospels, to history, to Paul's letters, to the the, uh, general letters, and finally to the apocalyptic letter, which many of us don't even know is there because it terrifies us just to think about Revelation. Notice there's about 400 years where there is not written a word from God. It's called the 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament, a time of waiting, a time of lament, a time of trusting that God will be true to his word and faithful to his people. And thematically, the Old Testament tells us of the Old Covenant and the New Testament of the New. More precisely, the Old Testament prepares the way for Christ. The Gospels announce the arrival of Christ. Acts shows us the continued work of Christ through the church. The epistles explain and teach us to follow Christ. The apocalyptic literature anticipates Christ's consummation and return. Did you pick up on that theme? The entire scriptures teach us about Christ. In fact, this is what Jesus said on Resurrection Sunday as he's walking on the road to Emmaus. He goes back through all of the scriptures and tells these two weary travelers about all of the things that were anticipating him. 
It was all, and it is all about him. And all of this we call the Bible. Taken, of course, from a Greek word that just means book. As Tim Challies has written in his immensely helpful and immersive book, A Visual Theology Guide to the Bible, I uh, commend it to you all. I thought I bought it for my kids because it had a lot of pictures, and I haven't let them look at it once because I keep wanting to read it and look at it. While thousands of years have passed since God breathed out the Old and New Testament scriptures, they remain the living, perfect Word of God today. Though the scriptures have passed through countless scribes in many forms, from papyrus to paper to phone, you can be confident that the word you read today is the very word that was breathed out by God and written by the prophets and apostles. Well, how can we have such confidence? Even before we get to what God's word says about God's word, notice that, before we get to God's word and what God's word says about it, let's just break it down in what's called textual criticism. We'll throw that out just because it's fun couple of points about that when we come to manuscripts and copies. Did you know there are over 20,000 copies of the original New Testament manuscript? Of those 23,769 known copies of the New Testament manuscript, 10,000 are in Latin. Another 11,000 are either written in Greek, Slavic, or Armenian. While the others, the others that remain in that number are Coptic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, and Gothic. This is far and away more copies of any manuscript of any other ancient writing. The close second, the closest second is 2,000. There are over 23,000 of the New Testament and only 2,000 of the close second. The New Testament was written between 45 and 95 A.D., and the earliest manuscript we have are dated A.D. 130. The earliest of these consistent copies of the New Testament are dated only 35 years after the original writings. Homer's Iliad is the closest comparable ancient writing in terms of copies and brevity from original writing to copies. He only has 2,000 copies, and it's 400 years removed from those original copies. See, the New Testament is historically solidly grounded beyond any other ancient writings. We're not done yet, church. I hope it is nourishment for your soul. We call the full list of the 66 books of Scripture the canon. It only has one end, so not like the military arsenal piece, but the canon. We look at a compendium, a collection of something. And we should wonder how each of these came about. Why are each of these affirmed to this day? Well, one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, and he was one of my Greek professors, so go Dr. Craig Blomberg, breaks down this process in three popular criteria. Apostolicity, Catholicity, and Orthodoxy. And I commend to you his wonderfully accessible book on this, Can We Still Believe the Bible? Can We Still Believe the Bible? Apostolicity is the idea that a work was written during the apostolic age before the 12 that mostly John had died. So, in other words, was this particular work produced before the 12 apostles had died? Believing that John died last, it had to have been produced before John died. Catholicity is an adjective for universal, so it's not about the Roman Catholic Church, it's an adjective for universal. Therefore, the criteria demanded that the believers throughout the parts of the world which Christianity had spread 
were in agreement on the abiding values of these books and used them widely. In other words, the church that existed to that day were using them regularly, they affirmed them, and that they believed that these were part of God's word as well. Lastly, orthodoxy meant that the documents were consistent with other affirmed words. In other words, there was no new teaching that contradicted something that had already been affirmed, whether in the Old Testament or previously affirmed New Testament writings. Each of these were reviewed by church leaders in what we now call church councils or confessions. These confessions began in Nicaea in AD 325 and in Laodicea in AD 363 and defended and reaffirmed all the way through the 15th, 16th, and 17th century in places like Trent and Westminster. Not only that, but the scriptures have something to tell us about the scriptures. Four things in particular that the scriptures boast about themselves— Scripture is authoritative, Scripture is clear, Scripture is necessary, and Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is authoritative. It is the final word in ethics, morality, and eternality come from God's word recorded in the Scriptures. In other words, if there is a word of a human being, a scholar, a preacher, or even the invisible little voice in your heart that contradicts the Scripture, God's word wins. Over in abundance, the word says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Because as Psalm 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace of the, on the ground, purified seven times. Secondly, Scripture is clear with humility and the power of God's Spirit, illuminating the Scriptures. Anyone can understand the most basic and most important elements and ideas of the Scriptures. Isn't that really good news? Psalm 119, 17 through 18, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Thirdly, Scripture is necessary in order to understand the point and purpose of life and that of our world. We must submit to God's words found in the Scriptures. This is not only true in deciding and forming what is best for us spiritually in this life, but also the scriptures are necessary for salvation in that this is where we discover who Jesus is. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Scripture is sufficient. Everything we need for salvation, for wisdom, and living in obedience to God is contained in the scriptures. This means nothing is left out, and we need no supplement to the scriptures with any other word or voice or written periodical that these words are sufficient. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the scripture, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what the Bereans knew. And the Bereans examined and looked at the Scriptures over and over and over again. They they sensed, they understood, they were authoritative, they were clear, they were necessary, they were sufficient, and they pointed all of them to Jesus. And the reason that the scriptures bear these qualities is because the author of these words bear these qualities. See, the scriptures cannot possess a quality that God does not. See, 
Ultimately, we know that the scriptures are authoritative, clear, and necessary, and sufficient because God is. God is fully authoritative. God is graciously clear. God is necessary for life. God is sufficient for all that we need. Therefore, a lack of trust and faithfulness to the scriptures is really a lack of trust and faithfulness to God himself. And that's what we don't want to admit. That's really hard. As scholar Wayne Grudem puts it, to disbelieve and disobey any word of the scriptures is to disbelieve or disobey God. See, while many Berean Jews, Greeks and women in high standing, believed in God through his word, the Thessalonican Jews persisted in their disbelief and agitation. Look at verse 19. Or forgive me, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. Was he hurting people? Was he harming people? Was he arresting and killing people like he did previously? No, he was preaching the word. He was proclaiming Christ. This is what was so agitating to them. Their aggression and repeated efforts to stir up trouble against this missionary team stems specifically from the proclamation of God's word. As soon as they heard that the scriptures were being preached in Berea, they're like, oh no, that can't happen. Let's get down there and stir things up just like we did here. So the Thessalonians get down there and they want to stop Paul again. The question for us is, of course, why? Why were these religious leaders, these Jews, so threatened and fearful of God's word? Contextually, their frustration is grounded in the gospel itself. Jesus, particularly in verse 7, these detractors understood that the implications of God's word was a complete surrender to Jesus, which therefore would have been a complete rejection and a dismissing of Caesar as Lord because Jesus is the exclusive Lord. This is the message of God's word. This is the point of every parchment, page, paragraph, prophet, priest, person, and point of the scriptures. That's a lot. It's a lot of peas. Jesus is the one who is the point of all of that. However... The Jews wouldn't have affirmed this conclusion. That would have gone against the grain for them. They would not have loved this interpretation. And so that's why seeing the Bereans come underneath this authority and the Thessalonians push it away is so instructive for us. Not only would they have believed the Messiah was still to come, but it seemed that in the meantime, they had bowed the need to a humanistic Lord and power and authority of the day. Here's the deal. Here's the real reason why we don't go to God's word and obey God's word, it's because we're already obeying someone else. We're already submitting to someone or something else. We've taken our cues from someone else. We've taken our cues from somewhere else. It's not because we don't know what the word says. Please, this is such a misnomer. We don't obey God's word because we don't know it. No, we know God's word. Much more, we know what the word says, and it's costly, it's consuming, all-consuming, it's conflicting to our natural sinful disposition. This is what led one of the most celebrated writers in history, Mark Twain, to say this, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. You see, we may not understand every word and every teaching, Or every idea. We may not be able to explain authorship and historicity. 
We may not be able to quote chapter and verse in every situation of our lives, but what we know, I believe, is that the scriptures are about an authoritative, clear, necessary, all-sufficient Lord who bids us to come and die. Our real issue with neither reading nor obeying God's word is about his lordship, not about our time, not about our familiarity. And that's why we regularly refuse, not out of ignorance, but out of understanding. And I'm just going to be real with you. I was painfully sick for the past three or four days. And my wife, who is so gracious, just said, what do you think the Lord is teaching you during this time? And I just said, nothing. (laughs) He obviously is not teaching me anything. Um... But it's something that we regularly talk about whenever there's something that sidelines us. And I could do nothing for three days. So if I owe you an email, forgive me. But being sick causes you to reflect and think. Being painfully sick and in bed for multiple days in a row certainly causes you to consider. And it wasn't until after all of that I looked back and I realized I never looked at the scriptures the entire time I was sick. Ever. I didn't even long for them. Laura constantly asked me, what can I bring you? What can I bring you? What can I give you that will help? What can I give you that will comfort you? What can I give you? You know what I kept doing? Bring me my iPad so I can be distracted by a terrible movie for a couple of hours that hopefully will pacify my pain. Bring me something that will distract me. Give me entertainment, not real encouragement. Give me something that will detach me from this moment, not a devotion that will give me hope in this moment. So, see, I cried out to God, take this away from me, but I didn't lean into him and confide in his word. It is deeply regrettable that I bring that to you. And you might say, well, calm down, Jason. You were sick. It's okay. We give you a pass. That's the problem. The problem is that at my weakest moment in the past couple of months, I didn't cling to God's word. I just wanted to distract myself from this world. How much more do we do that when the stakes are even higher than our physical health? When we are sick, when we are frustrated, when we are in pain, we go to anything and everything except God's word because we know what it's going to say. I knew if I opened up the scriptures, you know what it was going to say? Have hope. God is an ever-present help in trouble. Great. My stomach really hurts. I know what it was going to say. God is faithful to all of his promises. He never forgets his people. Great. I still am in a lot of pain. I can't sleep at night. Are you tracking with me yet? Like, in other words, what I didn't want was to submit to God and his will and his lordship. I wanted him to submit to mine. Get me out of this, and then I'll go to your word. God, forgive me. See, I feared his lordship. I feared what his word would say to me. Hope in God, not hope in comfort. But thanks be to God. There is hope for us who have wandered away and who have even run away from God's tenacious word. See, the intimacy of God's relationship with his word is seen in Jesus. Have you, have you been picking up on that yet? He is the word made flesh. And when we say this, we are not saying that Jesus is merely the idea or voice of God. 
but rather that if God's words are his divine self-disclosure, if in speaking to us he makes himself known, then Jesus is the truest expression of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. And so John begins his gospel anchored in this reality. He says this in John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this Johannian doctrine as well and opens up his letter with this same big idea on his mind. Long ago and many times in many different ways, God spoke to, the, to us by our fathers, by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What these biblical writers are making clear is that like the gospel, Jesus is the essence of God's word. The inscrutability of the word is grounded in the inscrutability of Jesus himself. He is unsearchable. He is inexhaustible. He is eternal. He is infallible. He is undefeated. He is faithful. He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. He is authoritative. He is visible. He is necessary for salvation. And he is all sufficient for salvation. He is the word made flesh. Therefore... His written word bears his qualities. And so when we come face to face with the scriptures, we are introduced to Jesus. If you want to know him more, if you want to know Jesus more, if you want to walk in the ways of Jesus, if you want to become like him, you must read and obey his word. With this identity, we see the duality of his character. It's quite beautiful. Let's not miss it. He is the glorious, the only son of the Father. Yes, he is the final word from on high, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Yes, he sits at the right hand of the majesty, but he's also full of grace. In fact, in him we receive grace upon grace, John says. Not only so, but in his power to do and say as he pleases. He can do whatever he wants, and what does he choose to do? To purify us for, from sin. Jesus is beyond scrutiny and yet full of grace. That means in his authority, he chooses to love you. He chooses to love me. And all of that fear we feel that keeps us from knowing and following his word is swallowed up in his love because his perfect love drives out fear. It is this word full of grace, full of truth, which welcomes those from high standing and low position. Those with understanding and those without, Greeks and Jews, men and women, anyone and everyone to come and hear this word and believe. Receive this word and worship. Examine this word and submit. Consider this word and rejoice. This was the effect of God's word in Berea. And it results in an eager daily consideration of submission and of love for the scriptures. The Thessalonican Jews were again successful in their disruption. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul is forced to keep moving. Silas and Paul hang out for a bit, but pretty soon Paul asks them to come and meet him in Athens. And as they face this new progressive challenge to God's word, they'll continue to be guided by the Spirit to provoke obedience, faithfulness, and power. They keep doing the work because God's word and his spirit continue to do this work today. Be encouraged in that. It continues to meet the most felt and most sophisticated needs of our day. From Addis Ababa to Tokyo to Chicago, millions of Christians, our brothers and sisters, gather around the world to hear the word, not only recorded wisdom, but also the hope of Jesus Christ crystallized in his word, made manifest by the power of God, revealed by the Spirit in the Scriptures. And as he is revealed through his word, those in high position and in low see a God who loves and yet calls to obedience because he is authoritative. He is our clarity. He is our sufficiency. And he is all that we need. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. I so quickly in a time of need or in a time of confusion cling to all other sources of earthly wisdom and refuse the very words of God. And so we thank you that when we look through the course of history, you have not only been faithful to inspire your words to come about, but you have protected your written word over the course of human history. And so we worship you for that, that we can have confidence now that when we read your word, we are reading the word of God. And not just for information's sake, we thank you that even more beautiful and more powerful, you still speak through your word. You still reveal your character, your love, your grace, your holiness, your purity, your faithfulness to us through your word. And so, God, help us to be a people that can't get enough of that. Help us to be a people that when a problem shows up, we say, what does God's word say about that? When a need shows up, we say, what does God's word say about that? When a feeling or an emotion or or a pain, God, would we seek comfort in your word? Because we know that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we ask, God, that you would lead us all the way that you would do that in your word, that we might be a people of the word like this church in Berea, our brothers and sisters, that we would examine it, that we would receive it, and that we would celebrate the truth ultimately of Jesus that is revealed through it and by them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.